Well, we are in Genesis 46 and 47 this morning. Turn there if you have a Bible with you. Genesis 46 and 47. We have just a few more sermons left in the book of Genesis. And then, as Chase mentioned earlier, we'll begin an Advent series on the theme of waiting in some various passages in the Bible. Thinking on that theme of waiting this week in view of our Advent series got me thinking just how much waiting is actually found in the book of Genesis. Noah and his family waiting for the flood to come, then waiting for the waters to subside. You've got Abraham and Sarah waiting for a child for decades as they sat on the promises of God that through them God would bring a multitude of offspring. You got Jacob waiting on Rebekah, his wife, as he worked on Laban's farm for 14 long years. And then in the story of Joseph, there is waiting upon waiting. Joseph waiting for what's next as he faithfully served Potiphar's household for over a decade in Egypt. And then waiting those two years while in prison, hoping that the cupbearer would help somehow. And then waiting and wondering if he'd ever see his brothers again. And then waiting for the return of Benjamin, the youngest. And then waiting to see if the father would eventually arrive in Egypt. There's just so much waiting. Genesis, along with the next four books in the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were written down mostly by Moses. And they were written down primarily, or at least originally, for those Israelites who had come out of slavery in Egypt, at least their parents did, and who were about to soon enter the promised land. They were about to cross that Jordan and enter the promised land that was talked about so much in the book of Genesis. It was written down for a people who had gone through the Exodus, who had wandered in the wilderness for some 40 years. Talk about waiting. And of course, their ancestors at the time of the book of Exodus being written, or at least the story it records, their ancestors had been in Egypt at that point for 430 years. So can you imagine people who had come out of Egypt whose ancestors had been in Egypt for hundreds of years, wouldn't they wonder, why Egypt? Why that whole thing? Was that really necessary? What was God up to in all that? Was that a detour in the plan of God? Was that an unnecessary, unfortunate delay in the plan of God? Well, the last several chapters of Genesis help to explain that. And if we can get some clarity as to what God was up to back then when it seemed like he might have been doing a detour or putting things on delay, then we might find some encouragement 
when our lives today seem like they take unhelpful detours or are put on unnecessary delays. We left off last week with the end of chapter 45 of Genesis where Father Jacob had received word that his son Joseph was, in fact, alive. After 22 years of being missing and presumed dead by his father, Jacob learns that he is alive in Egypt with great honor and authority. Joseph had sent his brothers back to their father to tell them all that took place and all that he said, and also to fetch Father Jacob and the rest of the family to bring them to Egypt where Joseph could care for them, which was especially important during this severe famine. So look down in chapter 46 and follow along as I start with the first seven verses. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, for Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his daughters' sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Well, I've got five R words that will help us keep track of the different scenes, the different movements of these chapters, 46 and 47. And we've just read of the first of these. Here's the first R. It's relocation. Relocation. Jacob and his family head out from Canaan. They head south toward Egypt, but they stop, notice, in Beersheba. And Beersheba was a significant place for this family. It was at Beersheba that Abraham once planted a memorial tree and called on God in Genesis 21. It was there in Beersheba that God once spoke to Isaac, Abraham's son, and passed along the covenant promises. So there, Isaac built an altar to God. That's chapter 26. And perhaps that very altar that Isaac built was still there a generation later when old man Jacob arrived and offered sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices? Well, he's likely offering thanksgiving to God who had protected his long-lost son. But he's also seeking God. He's seeking God in Beersheba. Because to leave Canaan for Egypt was no small deal. Remember, Canaan was the promised land. The land was bound up in those 
covenant promises that God had given to Abraham in his offspring. The land, just those two words, are referred to dozens and dozens of times in the narrative from Genesis 12 onward. We've said before in our study of Genesis that we can often trace the progress of God's plan in the book of Genesis by charting God's people's proximity to the promised land. Being out of the land is bad, being in the land is good. Jacob was in the land, he's about to go out of it. Further, there's this problem of going down to Egypt. That's happened before in the book of Genesis, and both times so far it's been bad. When there was another famine, Abraham went down to Egypt, and things did not go well for him, even worse for his wife. During another famine, in Isaac's day, God warned him to not go down. Do not go down to Egypt for food. I will provide for you here. So previous to our chapter, going down to Egypt has meant a lack of trust in God's ability to provide. It signaled someone putting trust in human pagan vestiges of power instead of God. So here we are at that fork in the road at Beersheba. And will Jacob go down? Can he go down to Egypt? He seeks the Lord to find out. And boy, this is a better Jacob than the one we have usually seen in the chapters previous. Here's a Jacob who doesn't want to step one foot out of the promised land unless he gets a green light from God. And he gets a green light. That night, God shows up. God speaks. Jacob, Jacob. He reveals himself. I am God, the God of your father. And then here's the green light. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Then followed by that are four encouragements. Four encouragements to bolster his confidence to go down to Egypt without fear. Here's the first encouragement There I will make you into a great nation. Now that promise that of Abraham's family there would come a great nation, that's been repeated in Genesis many times before. But what's new here is where it will happen in Egypt. There I will make you into a great nation. Encouragement number one. Encouragement number two, I myself will go down with you to Egypt Verse 4. Now you got to hear, recall Jacob's earlier vision of that ladder to heaven. Do you remember that? It was back in chapter 28. He had this vision of a ladder that went up to heaven and angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. And he said, This is the gate of heaven. And the vision signaled God's presence with him, followed by God stating, His presence with him. God said right after the vision, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So God's presence now is being graciously recommunicated or even recommitted to Jacob. Even as he goes down to Egypt, God will be with him. Side note here, 
the pagan deities of the surrounding peoples only had regional deities. Even the Egyptian gods were tied to things like the Nile River or those crops over there. They didn't have a concept of a single global God. But that's Israel's God. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that is. A God who isn't bound to Canaan. And so a move to Egypt or to Babylon later on is no problem for his abiding presence for this global God. Back to Genesis 46, though. Skip with me to the fourth encouragement, the end of verse 4. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, God says. In other words, Jacob, you will die in Egypt with Joseph. But you'll die reunited with your lost son. You'll die surrounded by loved ones as they gently and caringly close your eyelids. You'll die there. But the third encouragement, go back to that one. I will also bring you up again. To bring you up again means bring you back to the promised land. But how will Jacob be brought to the promised land if he'll die with Joseph in Egypt? Well, most likely, it refers not to Jacob's bones being transported back to the promised land for burial, even though that'll happen, chapter 50. More likely, this here refers to God bringing his people, Jacob's offspring, back into the promised land, which won't happen for almost 500 years. So the question remains. I hope you feel it looming why this whole Egypt thing? God doesn't need Egypt and that whole project for his people to survive a famine. He can feed them any way he wants. Later, he'll feed his people with water gushing from a rock and heavenly manna falling to the ground. God doesn't need to leave his people in Egypt for so long, does he? God can pull them out of Egypt at any time if he wants. Can't he? Shouldn't he? Well, regardless, we'll come back to that question. Regardless, Jacob has more than enough information here for a divine green light to head out for Egypt. And so he sets out, verse 5, with all his possessions, verse 6, with all his offspring, all his offspring said twice, so that it rings in our ears like the Abrahamic covenant, all his offspring. That's relocation. But before Jacob and his caravan arrive in Egypt, we're given, as the readers, we're given, secondly, a record. The second R, record. It's a genealogical record that follows. And I won't read it all. Reading the first and the last sentence of it should be enough. And besides, that'll save me the embarrassment of trying to muscle through dozens of Hebrew names. So look at 46, verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, 
and then read the end of verse 27, that last sentence, all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. What's in between those two verses is a record of the households of the sons of Jacob and also accounting of them. Seventy. Seventy. Now, for one thing, 70 is significant just, be, just because it indicates progress on this one fledgling family. I mean, do you remember the days when Abraham and Sarah had no children, only big promises about children, and they waited? Well, here we are, the fourth generation into the Abrahamic covenant, and now the family is 70. And that's a pretty big family reunion. But were they actually 70? The math has received some scrutiny by scholars and by skeptics over the years. Here's the dilemma. It says 70 went down to Egypt. But Joseph and his two sons are counted among the 70, but they were already in Egypt. Rachel is counted among the 70, but she's already dead. So are Er and Onan dead, and yet among the 70 who went down to Egypt. So some say 70 is just a, a round number. It's just rounding up. Well, perhaps, but it's also a significant number. 70 is not a mistake. It's not just rounding up. It's a significant number. The number 7 and the number 10 in Hebrew thought are numbers for fullness or completeness. 7 and 10. 70 is 7 times 10. This is complete completeness. Now, it's not just purely symbolic, this number, because these are real people. But there's a way to do the math so that you get to this number of completion that signifies some things. It signifies that the whole family went down to Egypt. No one was left behind. They're all together. They're not divided. They're not splintering. It's the whole family. And it's also reminiscent of another 70 in the Bible. The table of nations in Genesis 10. Back then, Genesis 10, at that point in history, the record of nations that came from Adam was at 70. All descendants of Adam at that point were 70 nations. And now, all the descendants of Abraham are at 70 people. It's representing, it's kind of prefiguring that God is up to a whole new creation here. I mean, it's sort of like the days of Noah, where God started over with a new creation from one family here. A new creation, 70. But that whole thing of a record of names or genealogies, that idea swells and grows in importance throughout the rest of the Bible. There are something like 25 genealogies in the Bible. And you get, your, get to scratching your head at some point wondering, why all this keeping track of names and lineage? And then you come to the New Testament where there are two New Testament books 
that begin with genealogies. And it's for tracing out the history that gets us to the Messiah, Jesus. These genealogies are important to know where the promises came from and how we got to this one person, Jesus. But the theme even keeps growing from there. The the theme of being written down among God's people is something that every Christian experiences as well. Every Christian is counted among the seed, the offspring of Abraham, if they simply have faith, regardless of their national heritage. And then you get this language in the rest of the Bible about being known by God and in in our names being written on his hands. And, And he calls us by name. And our names having been written down in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. And we remember that like God's people of old, we are known by God. Christian, you are known by God. That won't ever change. That's the record. Thirdly, there's a reunion, a sweet reunion. Finally, after 22 years, father and son, Jacob and Joseph, are to be reunited. And before I read it, don't forget that, jo- that, that Jacob has presumed his son Joseph to be dead these long years. For 22 years, he's grieved that loss. For 22 years, he said another loss like that one would kill him. For 22 years, the brothers have kept up their lie until their meeting with Joseph in Egypt until their reconciliation, until Joseph's commission to send them back to Canaan to tell dad and to bring him back here. And now that reunion is about to happen. And I want you to see, as I start to read it, who it is that leads the way in the rendezvous. It's Judah. Look at chapter 46, verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face And know that you are still alive. Judah, who once led the brothers in the whole scheme to sell off Joseph into slavery and to lie to the father, he now leads the way in this reunion of father and son. Joseph's royal status is unmistakable as he approaches on chariot, no doubt looking as regal as he is. But regality and decorum are set aside when they meet and embrace and weep a good long while. And Jacob says, I can now die. He has spoken of near-death experiences in earlier days, but now he can die in peace because Joseph is alive. 
I don't know what you think of family reunions. Some families get pretty difficult, and hence the idea of a family reunion, well, it sounds complicated. But not all families are difficult. Not all reunions are filled with relational landmines. And no doubt, as Christians, one day we will have a reunion that surpasses any of the best of family reunions any of us have ever experienced. That's not all that heaven will be. Yes, we will be most eager to see our Savior. But in heaven, we won't, we won't be detached souls communing with our Savior in our own little private pods separate from others. We will commune with him together. Several times in the Old Testament, death is described with this euphemism, he was gathered to his people. To his people. When Christ returns, we who are alive will be caught up together, together with him in the clouds. And so shall we always be with the Lord. It seems to me that when, when one is relatively new in their faith, they think of heaven primarily in terms of a family reunion. And then there's this middle phase where you kind of have grown out of that and you know that heaven is a very God-centered place, a very Christ-centered place. It's about him. It's not just about grandma. And then you get old enough and enough of your friends and family have passed on to glory and you now let your mind ponder the hope of being reunited with grandma someday, with mom or dad, or a child that's gone before you. Heaven will be more than just a sweet reunion, but it won't be less. It won't be less. Fourth, we come to reallocation. A reallocation of resources. And here we come to a longish section that really has two parts to it. They may feel distinct as we work our way through it, so much that you wonder whether they should be treated together. But I think that they're meant to go together for one primary message. But there's a lot to cover here. This will be the longest point of the five because so much is going on, number one. And number two, this is where it finally builds to answer that question, why Egypt? Why this whole thing? Here in this section, there are two scenes in which, number one, the Israelites prosper, and then number two, Egyptians just survive. You see, during this severe famine, there is a reallocation of resources, and astoundingly, the Hebrews, only 70 in number, and shepherds, they get land and riches, while the average Egyptian is happy just to survive because the times are that desperate. That's the point of this section. 
I'm tempted to just tell you that much and move on, but you're a church that likes to see it for yourself, and so I shall try to show you. Verse 31, look on there of chapter 46. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their, and their herds and all that they have. So when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now Joseph is being quite shrewd here, in a good way, good shrewd. Rather than come right out and ask Pharaoh for the most plush, most fertile land for his family, he plays the shepherd card, which, which is fine and good. They are shepherds. And the Egyptians don't like shepherds. They are an abomination to the Egyptians. The Egyptians have livestock, but they have foreigners manage them. And because shepherds sleep with flocks and smell like sheep, and because most cultures haven't put a very high value on shepherds, Egyptians are like that as well. And so, so Joseph says to his brothers, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to say. Pharaoh's going to ask you what you do for a living. And you're going to say, we're shepherds. Say it after me. Say it. We're sh practice right now. We're shepherds. All right? Everyone got it? We're shepherds. You say that and no more. Trust me. Well, I won't read it, but essentially that's what happens, except maybe the brothers say a bit more than they should have, but it still works. Chapter 47, verse 6. This is what Pharaoh says in response. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now, Goshen is Egyptian land, but it's up in the north, close to Canaan, and it's rural. It's also famously plush and resourceful. It is the best of the rural Egyptian land. It would later be called the land of Ramesses. And Joseph's family is given this land. These Hebrews are immediate landowners in Egypt with the resources to feed themselves. And they're even put in charge of Pharaoh's livestock, which now means that they work for the crown with all the rights and privileges involved. But before we get to the other half of this section, notice that there's another meeting here where Joseph introduces his aged father to Pharaoh. Look at chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of your years of life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning 
are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Now that part is full of surprise if we realize what is happening. Old man Jacob, head of a clan of 70 people, comes before the ruler of the known world, the most powerful man in the world. He's a hairy Hebrew. He's the head of shepherds. He's old and frail. He's just made a long journey. And you would expect to read next that, jo that Jacob entered the room and bowed before Pharaoh and spoke a brief word of greeting. And then you would hope that Pharaoh would then speak a word of greeting back to Jacob and bless him. But instead, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And some of our ladies who are studying Hebrews these days know exactly why this is significant. Because in Hebrews 7, which interacts with the Melchizedek story of Genesis 14, there the, the writer of Hebrews, as it comments on it, says it's beyond dispute that the inferior is always blessed by the superior. The greater always blesses the lesser. And so in the Melchizedek story, Melchizedek is apparently greater than great old father Abraham because he blessed Abraham, not the other way around. So when Jacob blessed Pharaoh, it tells us which way the blessing flows. It tells us which one is actually the greater despite all appearances. As it was told to Grandpa Abraham, chapter 12, verse 3, in you, the nations will be blessed. And here's just a little snapshot of it. And now we come to the second half of this section, which paints the picture of all of Egypt in a very desperate state during the severe famine. I won't read verses 13 to 19, but here's what they essentially say that the Egyptians eventually ran out of money to buy grain from Joseph, and so they started to sell their livestock to Joseph and Pharaoh to buy grain. Eventually, that grain ran out, and so they came to Joseph with this not unheard of proposal for a desperate situation. They say, how about this? We'll sell you our land and then let us work that land as servants on it. Well, now read verse 20 and following of chapter 47. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. 
Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. Stop there. Joseph gets a bad rap for this sometimes, but it's not bad. It might sound like he's taking advantage of desperate people, that he's stealing their land, that he's enslaving them, and worst of all, he's raising taxes. But there are several things that we need to keep in mind here to understand what's going on. In this culture, it was assumed that you would pay your way with whatever you had, however little you had left. Also notice that the people initiated each of these deals with Joseph, even the last one, selling their land. The situation was just that desperate. Look at verse 19. Why should we die before your eyes, the people say, we in our land? Buy us in our land and we'll be servants to Pharaoh. This wasn't man-stealing slavery like our country has sadly known in its past. No, this was indentured servitude. This was the people selling their land to Pharaoh, then becoming tenant farmers of that land, while paying 20% tax on the produce, which meant they got to keep four-fifths of it. And that was the deal throughout all of Egypt. Well, except for the clergy. There was a clergy exemption. And some of my fellow staff brothers say amen. <laughs> and just notice the people at the end were thankful. You have saved our lives. These are desperate people. And again, that points us to the purpose of these two halves of one heading. During the severe famine, there was a reallocation of resources. And astoundingly, 70 Hebrews were given prime plots of land while the average Egyptian was simply happy to survive. God, even in these days, was blessing his people. He was blessing his people in a foreign land. God was with his people in a foreign land. So look at verse 27, the summary. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is creation language. It's Genesis 1.28 where God said be fruitful and multiply. This is covenant language where God said in John, Genesis 22, I will surely multiply your offspring like the stars of the sky. The same language was first used as a command. Be fruitful and multiply. Then used as a promise. I will multiply you. And now here in chapter 47, it's used as a present reality. They were 
fruitful and multiplied greatly. And this language, if we're reading the Bible, not just one book at a time, but books to books to books to books, it should also remind us of the next book, Exodus. Listen to Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. They were 70. Verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 who were already in Egypt. Joseph died. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So now we come to that question, that nagging question of why. Let me just offer some reasons for this whole Egypt thing, which seemed like a detour, which seemed like an unnecessary delay. It was not only the survival of these 70 during a severe famine, it was a time and conditions unusually conducive to his people's prosperity and protection and propagation in spiritual purity. Remember that recurring problem in earlier chapters of Genesis where God's people kept marrying foreign women? Which I know sounds racist to say that that was a bad thing if you're not familiar with the Bible. But the issue was more of a religious thing than just a race thing. God was trying to keep his people fully devoted to him, and that's hard to do when your wife worships an Egyptian god. And so Egypt proved to be, here it is, a crockpot. How many of you like to use crockpots? Can I just see? We do. Crockpots are great, aren't they? Egypt and Goshen specifically, proved to be a crockpot for God's people. Because Goshen was this enclave in Egypt, rural Egypt. And Israelites as shepherds meant they were separate from the Egyptians. It provided a crockpot of safety and seclusion, of spiritual purity and protection and propagation. And that crock pot was set on simmer for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years of God's people making babies and becoming an intimidating multitude by the time of Exodus. Hundreds of years of God birthing a nation just as he told Jacob he would do in Egypt. And it was hundreds of years in Egypt before there was a Pharaoh who had no allegiance to Joseph. That's in Exodus 1 as well. It was hundreds of years before they were thrown into harsh slavery. But it was the plan all along. It was even foretold in Genesis 15. God said to Abraham back then, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, that's Exodus, that's not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted 400 years. And I will bring judgment on that nation, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God, once again, is doing many things at once. And like an iceberg, most of them are below the surface until he decides to flip it 
and it gets real big and you see what's below. Even to this day, we look back to the Exodus as a pattern for how God redeems enslaved people. That should be reason enough for God to have done the whole Exodus enterprise. To this day, we look back to books like Genesis and Exodus to remind ourselves that God is with us even in a foreign land. And now we come to this last R. Quickly, we'll finish with this. Request. It's a final request. Look at verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. There's the request. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. There's his final request. The promised land was never ultimate, but it would be integral to God's plan for a time. And for Jacob to be buried back in the promised land, well, it signals his faith in the promises of God not least those promises about the land. Joseph will be buried there. God's people will return to that land just as God said. And yes, it would take hundreds of years more till the days of Joshua for the people to return to the land with the bones of Joseph. That's coming in a couple of weeks. But it happened. The plan is sure, even when it seems to take detours and delays. And so Jacob trusted God's word. He knew that God was far from done. And so he asked his son this dying request, bury me in the promised land. He died having not received the promises did you catch that? Ben read for us earlier from Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having actually received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They were acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And people who speak like that are seeking a homeland, a heavenly homeland. Ultimately, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And that's what we seek as well. The theme of God's presence is far from done with the book of Genesis or Exodus. The theme of God's presence runs through the, the tabernacle and the temple. It runs through Jerusalem, that holy city of God. But it doesn't stop there. God himself comes and dwells among us in Jesus, his son, and we beheld his glory. After his death and resurrection, he promised to give us his spirit who dwells within us. 
so that we now are his living temples. When we come together like this, it is a, it is a dwelling place of God. It's like the stones of the temple have come together again for a building that God indwells. The presence of God. I don't know about you, but it's something I, I come back to. I keep banking on. I, when I think of being intimidated to tell someone about Jesus, I remember in the Great Commission that Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us in our mission. He's with us in our suffering. He's with us wherever we go. He's with you, Christian, whatever you're going through right now. Whatever's new and challenging and weird and foreign. And when this world feels foreign to us, we shouldn't be surprised. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. And he's coming. And when he comes, we'll be with him. We'll be really with him. We'll see him. The dwelling place of God will be with men. And this is how our Bibles end. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is our hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your word is rich. Your word is thorough. Your word is what we need. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Give us what we need. In our pilgrimage toward heaven, Lord, we pray, feed us, be with us, and watch over us, whatever may fall in wherever we go. And Lord, we pray for those with us who haven't yet latched on to this hope by your grace. Perhaps today would be such a day. Perhaps even now as we sing of that truth and the hope that the gospel brings, you would open eyes to see, open ears to hear. We pray you'd give spiritual sight and hearing and that some here would be saved for the very first time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.